0: And before we begin, uh, I'd like to pray a prayer um, that Charles Spurgeon prayed. Charles Spurgeon was a great 19th century English Baptist preacher. Uh, some would call him the Prince of Preachers. But this was a, a prayer he prayed uh, in relation to his own preaching. So let's, uh, let's commit ourselves to come humbly to God's word and we'll pray the, the prayer that Charles Spurgeon once prayed. O Lord, we would cling to Thee more firmly than ever we have done. We trust we can say also that we love the Lord, but oh that we loved Him more. Let this blessed flame feed on the very marrow of our bones. May the zeal of your house consume us. May we feel the love, may we feel that we love the Lord with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. And hence may there be about our life a special consecration and immovable dedication unto you alone O oh lord jesus deepen in us our knowledge of you we would that the word of god were more sweet to us more intensely precious that we had a deeper hunger and thirst after it oh that our knowledge of the truth were more clear and our grip of it more steadfast teach us O oh lord to know the reason of the hope that is in us and to be able to defend the faith against all comers Plough deep in us, great Lord, and let the roots of your grace strike into the roots of our being, until it shall be no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. Amen. Well, let's read Third John together, um, the third letter of John. And Jesus' apostle writes, The elder, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God for they have gone out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth I've written something to the church But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Peace be to you, the friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. Well, that's a a precious little glimpse of the early church in action. Uh, John was the last surviving apostle, we believe. Church history tells us that he was the only one that was not killed for his faith. So we believe that John probably lived to a good old age and we believe that the letters of John were amongst the very last things that was contributed to the body of literature that we call the New Testament. So what we've got here is the last Holy Spirit inspired, or one of the last pieces of Holy Spirit inspired scripture that needs to guide the whole passage of the church until Jesus returns again. So John the old man writing remote from the people that he's writing to, writing because he couldn't be with them in person, is giving them marching orders so that they continue. They can continue in what they've been taught from the beginning. Now we're at the end of this little series on the letters of John but there's a number of key words and phrases that turn up throughout all of John's writings. One is from the beginning. And so from the beginning means this is what I've heard as an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus and I'm passing it on to you. Jesus taught me, I'm teaching you, you need to teach others what we've heard from the beginning. Don't depart from it, don't run on ahead of it, don't detract from it, just teach it the way it's come to you, whole and entire, from the beginning. Another of his great words is abide, to continue or to remain in something, to stay. Now John says you've got to abide and there's three things in particular that he said that his readers needed to abide in. So we've looked at these as we've gone through the first letter of John and the second but he said that they needed to particularly abide in the truth, the truth that was taught to them from the beginning, the truth about the Lord Jesus, who he is and what he's done. They needed to abide in love and so the demonstration that they actually understand the truth is that they love one another. Because that was the sign that Jesus said, the whole world will know you're my disciples when you love one another. But then John says also they need to obey. And that's a package. You can't say, well, I'm a truth man. I'm an obedience woman. No, the truth of the gospel is going to reveal itself in a life of love that's lived lovingly in obedience to what Jesus requires. Truth, love and obedience are a package. And they're the marks of the real believer. Now John's writing because antichrists have come up in the congregations that he's been responsible for planting and they have derailed the faith of some and they've left the church. And it's left the people in the church wondering who's the true believer around here. Well John says you can count on this because it's not just from me, it's from us, us meaning the apostles the eyewitnesses, the people who have received the teaching of Jesus. Now these things are important and they continue to play out as very important. So these antichrists, these false teachers, these deceivers, John calls them, in First John chapter 2, they're people who have denied something very wonderful about the Lord Jesus. They're people who have denied something about who he is and what he's done, about his person and work. Uh, And so John says in 1 John chapter 2, whoever confesses the Son, in other words, whoever believes and speaks rightly about Jesus, has the Father. And so he says, 1 John chapter 2, verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you, remain in you, continue. If what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So John writes so that they've got a benchmark of truth against which they can judge any other claim so that they won't be misled or deceived. Now in Second John that Ray preached last week, Second John 9, John says this about these false teachers, these antichrists, these deceivers. He says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Now, that's a, a definitive statement. It's an either-or statement. If John says they don't teach what's been taught from the beginning, they don't have God. So don't be deceived by them and certainly don't follow them. Now, these these things are live issues for us in our world because the denial of Jesus person and work who he is and what he's done is always going to be a challenge now I don't know if you read the newspapers but I try to read the Australian newspaper most days I subscribe to it online there was a fascinating article yesterday now I googled it just to make sure that I I didn't know if other news services had it as well the only one that did pick it up was the Australian uh, and there's a story in there about a controversy in Tasmania so the Archbishop of the Anglican Church in Tasmania is a man called Richard Condy, And Richard Condy was involved in an act of discipline against a woman who had published a book and was distributing that book and she's a member of the Anglican Church in Tasmania. And so the book says that Jesus was not God. Because she says, Jesus, if he was God when he died, if God really died, then the universe would stop because God keeps the whole universe going. So she says in her book, apparently, that Jesus couldn't have been God or he ceased to be God when he was on the cross because she said God can't die. Now, Richard Condy has taken, she actually sent him a copy of the book and asked for his thoughts on it. And uh, he told her that the book contains significant and dangerous heresy. And he went on and said to claim Jesus was not God when he died on the cross does not accord with orthodox teaching in any Christian tradition. It undermines the doctrine of the Trinity and the efficacy of Jesus' death for sin. He said her position that she's articulated in the book and distributed undermines people's confidence in Christ and she had refused to agree to stop distributing the book. So what's he to do? Now the article was an interesting case study in how the world looks at Christian things because the article emphasised that she was 72 and a grandmother. Why are either of those things important? Because they're trying to win our sympathy. The article suggested that this was small bickies, really, and it was just a bit of a Christian tiff. But then it went on to say that she was the victim of domestic abuse and violence. Now, they're horrible things. But, strictly speaking, they don't really have much to do with the case. Again, it's to win our sympathy. And then the article reminded us that Richard Condy is no stranger to controversy because he took a stand against same-sex marriage. So, in other words, we're meant to look at this article and say, well, he's a doctrinaire, bullying, um, truth-obsessed creep. And this poor woman just wants to get along and say what's on her heart. Well, Richard Condy says, no, you can't do that and remain in the Anglican Church. So if you won't stop, then I'm going to ban you from attending. And so the tenor of the article was to suggest that this is a controversy about a pretty small matter. And when I read the reader comments down below, that's what most of them said. Who even cares? This has confirmed me in my atheism and so on. Um, but the woman says in her book, if we're true to the scriptures in the New Testament, there's nothing in it that says that Jesus was God. Now is that true? Well I don't think it is and I think First John is a great source that shows us that what we claim about Jesus can only lead us to conclude that he is God in the flesh. John's gospel says the same, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's the word? The one who was with God in the beginning and who was God says John. These are conditions that these are beliefs that John has come to through personal contact with Jesus. John wasn't always a believer, he like all of the disciples had to be converted and when he saw Jesus hung on the cross but then experienced his resurrection power three days later he was left with no other conclusion that Jesus is a man who is God and so that's why he wrote. Now you can't depart from that and call yourself a Christian and that, so this is a controversy which is playing out now and yet it's a very ancient one. It's just what John was up against. And so we go back to third John, because this is a case study of the world that that John was was working in. And so verse one, it's the shortest uh, component of the New Testament. You might call it a book, it's a letter, it's the shortest one. It's also unusual, and it's the only piece of New Testament literature that doesn't use the word, the name Jesus. Uh, But it's still a A fascinating little piece so John begins the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth now right right there we can learn some things that I think are important what do we learn about John well we learn that John is a man who has deep affection for the people that he's ministering to so in verse 2 he says beloved I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul for I rejoice greatly When the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So what can we learn about John? Well, the first thing is he calls himself the elder. What could he have called himself? He could have called himself the beloved disciple. He could have called himself an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Both of those would have been true. But for the purposes of writing this letter, he takes the title elder. And I think in that we can see a real sign of humility. He's not pulling rank. He's not trading on his credentials to impress anybody. He's behaving in a humble kind of a way. Humility is one of the great Christian virtues. You won't find it often in the world. It was a despised concept back in the ancient world when John was writing humility was not seen as any sign of character at all it was seen as a sign of weakness but john doesn't exalt himself because the only one he wants to exalt is jesus and he wants to write to gaius because this is a personal letter in a way that emphasizes the truth and discounts his own role in things so he calls himself just the elder uh I was reading a biography recently that contained a fascinating little story. A man, a builder's labourer, became a Christian and started attending a church. It's just a small church, a humble church, but this man became a Christian and, and started attending. And he started talking to his colleagues on the work site and they started asking him questions about his newfound faith, which he wasn't keeping any kind of secret. Now, he was a new Christian, so he, didn't, he wasn't able to answer all the questions and so he asked someone at church and came back. And so these fellows said, how is it you know so much? And he says, well, there's this old man at church called Fred and he seems to know a bit. Well, Fred, old Fred, was F.F. F. Bruce, who some people would say was one of the greatest 20th century New Testament scholars. Um, the man didn't know that old Fred used to work at a, a theological college and had written dozens and dozens of books and thousands of scholarly articles... That wasn't important to Fred to tell him. But he just thought, well, Fred knows a bit. Isn't that wonderful? That this man who could have traded on his incredibly impressive credentials that took him all around the world lecturing and published dozens of books to this newly converted builder's library he was just a brother in Christ who seemed to know a bit. That's humility. And we find that in John. Well beloved Gaius was probably a church leader, probably an elder, but he's someone that John's very warm and affectionate towards uh, because that's the Christian way to be uh, to to love those who love Jesus in common. And so he prays for Gaius that all will go well. He wants him to be walking walking well. Uh literally the phrase that John uses here is to be led on a good road. Now we talk to people and we say how are you traveling? Don't we? All right? And what do we want in response? We'd like to hear that people are travelling well. And so John's prayer is that Gaius is well in body and soul, which means through and through. John wants him to be well physically, but he wants him above all to be well spiritually, to be walking in the truth. Now, John uses the phrase there, in your truth. Now, we hear people talking about that these days. Well, you've got your truth, Stephen. I have my truth. There's only one truth. John is not advancing that as a prospect here. What he means is your truth, which I love, is the same truth I believe because we've both believed in Jesus. And that's the truth that John commends as seeing in evidence in the life of Gaius, the one that he writes to. But in verses 3 to 4, there's this wonderful little phrase that I want to think about for a moment. And so verses 3 to 4, John writes... Um, I have no, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now that would be a good verse to underline. And that would be a good verse to start thinking seriously about in your interactions with other believers but in your prayers for them. What's your deepest joy? Is it somewhere near the top of the list in, in, in the things that give you joy? to hear or to see Christians who are doing well. Does that do anything for you? Or is it something that leaves you a bit cold and indifferent? John says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. He doesn't mean biological children, he means children in the faith. People that have come to Christ through his ministry or people for whom he has some fatherly concern. But that is a beautiful phrase. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You see, what we believe, the truth, will translate into behaviour. That's why it matters in the Anglican Church in Tasmania that a person who's teaching error through a book needs to be counted because falsehood, untruth will translate itself into unloving behaviour, which is disobedience. Truth and love and obedience are a package. They all go together. But it starts with believing rightly about who Jesus is and what he's done. And so John's glad, he's joyful, to to, to hear that Gaius is continuing to walk in the truth, which wouldn't have been easy in those days because they were living in a hostile world. But it's John's... Uh, Greatest joy, he says. So here's a challenge for you and for me. Uh, Is this an accurate reflection of us? Do we have a concern for the spiritual welfare of others? Do we find it to be an occasion for joy when we hear that our brothers and sisters are travelling well in the faith, in the Lord Jesus? They're holding fast to what's true and they're living it out. Now, one of the deepest sorrows, I think, in the Christian life is knowing when people fall away. I read years ago, um, uh, this, this older Christian had written this book and he said the deepest cause of his sorrow was to hear that people have fallen away. And the older you get in the faith, the more you know. Because it's easy to quit and the world wants you to and the world's trying to squeeze you into a shape that says be more like us it'll be more convenient. There are some things that we believe that are inconvenient. There are some things that we believe that will make other people sneer and say, you don't believe that stuff, do you? So this article I was reading yesterday suggested that Richard Condy's behaviour is medieval. In other words, something that we've grown too smart to believe in, we should now believe something different. He's holding fast to the truth and won't let it go, and he's sneered at. Well, that's how it goes. But truth is true. And it always will be. Years ago this is this a profound uh, profoundly effective incident in my life. We I grew up going on summer holiday beach missions. My parents were the leaders of the team. So I was just as a kid I used to go along. And it was very important for me as a Christian because I was surrounded by older people, probably only eighteen or nineteen or twenty, but they seemed pretty switched on. And they had attractive lives and they believed in Jesus and they were kind to me. That was a pretty powerful package. And it really impressed itself on me so I wanted to be like these people. And so that, that helped me in my Christian walk. But every year after the beach mission season was over we'd have this big gathering in the gardens in Carlton, the exhibition gardens in Carlton. And the leader of the scripture union movement got up and made a little speech. And he said to hundreds of young people who'd been on beach missions, he said, I can't remember exactly because I was only about 10, but it was words to the effect of, the statistics show that people of your age in five years, and he gave the percentage, this many of you will have stopped being Christian, right? So I can't remember the percentage, but he said, in five years, the statistics show that people of your age, this many percent will have ceased to be Christian, And in my 10-year-old head, I did a mental inventory of our team. I thought, no, that won't happen to any of ours because they all love Jesus. But it was true. And what was worse was that he gave up the faith by the end of his life. Now, here's the challenge. Are you concerned for the spiritual progress of others? Because if you are, that's love. And truth leads to love and obedience. But are you concerned for your own progress? Are you so concerned for your own progress that you would take on board a word of challenge or correction from someone who was offering it in genuine Christian love? Because, you see, it's so easy to fall away. It's so easy to be conformed to the world and to let the world uh, shape us and squeeze us. We move on, verse 5. And so we read here about Gaius and the brothers. So John writes, Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So these brothers are travelling missionaries. They've probably been sent by John and they've brought back to John news that Gaius is going well and that he's been faithful in his hospitality so they're strangers but they're brothers and the fact that they're brothers overrides the fact that Gaius doesn't know them personally hospitality was one of the great duties of the ancient world and particularly for Christians because there were no motels and hotels to stay in if you were traveling on behalf of Jesus uh, it was a risky business and so to find warm hospitality and, and, and good company was an important thing so John writes in verse 6, to send them on in a manner worthy of God. Um, that means to do something in a fitting way. What's worthy of God? Well, another way of thinking about that is what's God worth? What's God ever done for you? Well, saved you. That's a start. So you'll never repay God. You'll never out give God. But you can express your gratitude and your sense of his worthiness in your acts of obedience, which come from the truth and are stimulated by love and which express themselves in this context in generosity. Generosity to people who've taken the message of Jesus elsewhere. Now, we support a number of missionaries. And so we can't all of us go. We can do a number of things. We can stay and pray. We can give to make their going possible to make sure that the gospel goes elsewhere, but we can encourage them through personal contact. So it's coming up Christmas. Would we write them a Christmas card to let them know that they haven't been forgotten? So sending them on in a manner which is worthy of God means thinking about all God's done for us and then behaving in a way which is consistent with that worthiness. So they've gone out for the sake of the name, which means they've gone out for Jesus, uh, but they've received nothing from the Gentiles. Now, there's another principle, and I think this is really important for Christians to maintain as a, as a solid principle. Any work that we want to do for the gospel will be funded by Christians. We don't look to the government or the Shire Council for funding because if we do, that will compromise our work. Back in those days, the world was very hostile, And so there was no prospect that anybody in the world would fund Christian mission. The only ones that could do it were believers. But I've seen enough over my time to to believe this to be quite true, that when Christian organisations accept money from unbelievers, especially unbelieving entities like government bodies or so on, it will compromise the message. Because the money usually comes with strings attached. So if the Lord's work is to be done, it has to be done in his way. Now Hudson Taylor was a great missionary to China and he had a little saying. He said, the Lord's work done in the Lord's way will never lack the Lord's supply. It's a matter of faith. But here's another thing I want you to think about. If we take money from unbelievers, I wonder if that's a sign of a lack of faith in God. Where God might just say, "Well, if you're going to take money from them, you don't. You're not really relying on me," and He might withdraw His hand of blessing. So I think it's a principle of Christian work. If it's to be done, it needs to be financed by the generous believers in Christ, and this is a a partnership. So in verse eight, we're told that when you do this, you're fellow workers for the truth. That's it. That's a wonderful thing. That'd be good to have on your gravestone, actually, wouldn't it? fellow worker for the truth Hmm. there's something to think about if you're writing these things down so that your wishes are respected um, so Gaius has passed the test but then we move on to a truly dislikable character Diotrephes in verses 9 to 10 so John says I have I've written something to the church but Diotrephes who likes to put himself first does not acknowledge our authority so if I come I'll bring up what he's doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. That's early church discipline. Diotrephes is a threat to the believing community. And remembering that this is a very late letter in the formation of the New Testament canon, he's a threat to the transmission of the gospel. Now, how is it that we're all Christians? I hope we're all Christians. But how is it that we've become Christian? Because somebody told us. And somebody told them. And somebody told them, and and there's a chain that reaches all the way back to the apostles to Jesus. And it's a chain that can't be broken. and, and, And the gospel has to be passed on truly. Diotrephes is a threat. Because he won't receive the letter that John wrote as an acknowledged apostle. He doesn't acknowledge John's authority. And not only that, he's put out of the church people that do want to teach what John teaches. So he's a man who's characterised by loving himself and putting himself first. He's probably a powerful, influential person in the congregation. Maybe he was a successful businessman in town. Maybe he had secular clout. Maybe he was a person so gifted with language and had a forceful personality that he just expected to be obeyed. We're not really told, but we are told that he loves to put himself first. He desired to be preeminent. So John says, well, this is a threat to the gospel. He's going to have to be dealt with. He says, when I come, I'll bring up all he's doing. And amongst other things, he's talking wicked nonsense Who against us. That means the apostles. He's taken issue with something. He's actually an antichrist who has stayed in the church. The others have all gone, but he's one who's remained. And John says, well, he'll need to be dealt with. So what should Christian leadership look like? John doesn't actually say it here, but we don't need him to because he's already written about it in in his Gospel. Jesus defined Christian leadership when he washed his disciples' feet. Did Jesus love to be first? No. We're told he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, Jesus bent down low at the last supper and washed his disciples dirty feet it was the act of the most menial slave in the household and yet Jesus did it and he says uh, John records in chapter 13 of his gospel verse 15 I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you Christian leadership must never be expressed in coercion or bullying or the love of power Christian leadership should be expressed in service like Jesus. The CEO model of Christian leadership is wrong for churches. And so Diotrephes was one who loved to be first. He was a bully um, and he was an enemy of the gospel. And so John has to deal with it. But then verse 11, which continues the treatment of Diotrephes, John turns it round. he says, Beloved, he's meaning Gaius, who's received the letter, do not imitate good, but do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Now, it's probably fair to say that when John writes do not imitate evil, he means don't be anything like diatrophies. Don't think you've got anything to learn from his leadership model. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. And I think that's diatrophies. The evil he's doing is denying the apostolic instruction, denying people who teach it, who, who, who want to bring it, not letting John's words be read and behaving in a way which is inconsistent with the leadership that Jesus modeled. And that's not good, it's evil, and that means he doesn't know God. But Demetrius, verse 12, has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true now Demetrius we're not told anything else about him he probably was the person that took the letter from John to the church that's received it probably Demetrius carried all three letters Uh, and and this this third letter is is John's personal letter to Gaius to help him understand his role in the other two as well but Demetrius has a good testimony that means his manner of life is in accord with the truth of God revealed through the Lord Jesus And so John finishes up with a blessing. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we'll talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. And there's there's a glimpse of how things should be. Peace. Peace amongst Christians. Friendship. John writes as the beloved disciple with a heart full of love for God's people, because he has no greater joy than seeing God's people walk in the truth. He writes to Gaius as his child in the faith, as an old man. Uh, and and what he wishes and what he prays for for the church community of which Gaius is a leader is peace. Peace to you. The friends greet you, greet the friends each by name. We live in a hostile world. Churches should be factories of love where needs are known and looked after, where people are cared for, where people feel secure and safe. Now, love should not be confused with, with softness. We've got to have hard heads and tender hearts. If error creeps in, we've got to deal with it. Now, nobody gets everything right all the time. Have you noticed that? So if we find someone who is entertaining beliefs which are outside of the truth, what do we do? Well, we gently try to correct them. The diatrophies principle, the the, 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 the the situation that Richard Condie is dealing with, is the last, last thing you do. You don't start with dismissal. You begin with a loving attempt to come alongside and gently correct and then you try again and if they persist because you see the thing is Diotrephes when it says he likes to put him first that's that's a four or five word English translation of one Greek word which is a present tense verb Diotrephes just keeps on loving to put himself first that's the kind of man he is and so We don't begin with dismissal but if we get to a point where this person seems to be threatening the transmission of truth in the congregation which is going to flow on to bad effects on love and obedience then we have to do something. Always desiring that that person turn back. But the peace of the Christian congregation is not peace at any cost. It's peace that comes from unity, which comes from a shared commitment to truth worked out in lives of obedience for the sake of the love of the Lord Jesus. And I hope that's what you all want from Africa Community Church. Because if you do, then you're wanting what Jesus wants and what John wrote to defend and to, to advance. But that's, that's, that's the picture of the church in action. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends each by name. Let's pray. Uh, Father, please help us to be stout-hearted defenders of the truth, believers in the truth. Uh, Help us to be people who are quick to speak the truth, but help us to be people who demonstrate that we understand the truth by living lives of obedience and love. I pray that you would cause uh, truth, obedience and love to be hallmarks of our fellowship here in Mafra. And I pray that you would help us to be careful to to observe these things, to to grow deeper in our love for the Lord Jesus, our gratitude to you, our Heavenly Father, for sending him to be our Saviour. But help us also to love each other and to sincerely desire that we all do well in body and soul, uh, walking well in the truth of the Lord Jesus. And so we pray all these things in his name. Amen.